Brother Bob. Some of you know we are going on sabbatical this fall and we're going to have a chance to visit Pastor Bob, Vicki down in Florida, and Pastor Marty Volz will be filling in for the fall. If you don't know Marty, he's sitting back here somewhere. There he is, right there. And Marty uh, was the interim pastor here before we arrived back in 2013 and is beloved. And uh, from what I've seen him preparing for the menu for the fall, you will be well fed and well taken care of. Regarding inflatables, <laughs> I would be honored to go down the inflatable following right behind Pastor Doug and Lisa. So. When you see them go down, I'll be next. <laughs> I do invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. It's hardly a book, 48 verses. It's on one page in my Bible. <laughs> but a very important part of Holy Scripture. This morning, we're, doing a, we're starting a two-week series in the book of Jonah. You can take Jonah in one week. I've done that. You can take it in two. You can take it in four there's a lot here. It is a fascinating book that contains one of the most, quite honestly, familiar, famous, and probably infamous stories in the Bible. In fact, a lot of people in Western culture who aren't even Christian, who are secular, are quite familiar, at least with the macro themes in this book. It's a true story, by the way, of an angry prophet who tried to run away from God. And there's so much in this story. And yet Jonah really is not a story about a man and a fish, some kind of, you know, something akin to Hemingway's classic, uh, The Old Man of the Sea. It, it is not a story about a man and a fish, really. It is a story about God and God's plan to reach all peoples with the gospel. It is a story about a gracious and a compassionate God who loves all people, peoples, as such, the book of Jonah ties directly into the story of the Bible. Yes, what's the story of the Bible? And these are my words, but the story of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation is God's promise to become famous among all peoples for his glory and their salvation. God's promise to become famous among all peoples for his glory, first and foremost, and for their salvation. We're going to begin this weekend by looking at the first half of Jonah, chapter 1, chapter 2, or as Pastor Bob said it very well, talk, meet an angry prophet who's trying to run away from God. In fact, John Calvin, the great reformer, he argued that the book of Jonah was written primarily to teach us the futility of trying to run from God. And all of us here, whether we know Christ or not, I know there's both camps here, have done the Jonah thing at times. Even true, genuine believers have done the Jonah thing. I'm sure there's some here this morning trying to do the Jonah thing right now, run from God. And this book has some very important lessons for us. So with that, we're going to dive in. This morning, we're just going to look at two parts. First, the plan for Jonah, which is laid out very clearly by God, unmistakably clear. And then God's patience, tying into the whole theme of God's compassion. First of all, God's plan for Jonah. A couple quick facts about Jonah. Some of you have been believers for a long time. Some of you are in between. Some are brand new to the Bible. You don't know it at all. So let me just give you a few things about Jonah. It's a very short book, as we call it. It's only 48 verses. 
and yet it's a book full of surprises, lots of surprises. I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces in this book. You've got an angry missionary. You've got a storm at sea. You've got a miraculous rescue. You've got pagan sailors. You've got a prayer from inside a fish. You've got a citywide revival in one of the most violent cities, one of the largest cities on the planet at the time, uh, at the heart of the largest empire at the time. You have a prophet who had a pity party at the end of the book. Jonah doesn't turn out to be much of a hero throughout the book. And a divinely appointed worm at the very end of the book. There's just a lot of moving pieces in this. It's an interpretive uh, minefield for many as you walk through this book. Because of, uh, which brings us to the opening verses where we see, verses 1 and 2, God's plan for Jonah. You heard Pastor Bob read it. So good to have you guys here this morning. God's plan for Jonah. Not a difficult plan. It's a very clear plan. And it's laid out with great clarity. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amity. Go. It's interesting in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible, in the Hebrew Old Testament, same word for the great commission used in Matthew 28. Go. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it. Why? Because in the same concept as the Canaanite cities where God ordered to be wiped out, same logic, same rationale because of their wickedness. Their wickedness has come up again. Same wickedness for why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We're told uh, in 2 Kings 14 that um, Jonah came from Galilee, came from the same area Jesus did, from Gath Hefer about three miles north of, uh, of what is Nazareth. He's called by God to be a missionary in what is today we would call Iraq. What's so interesting, he's the only prophet that I'm aware of that went the other direction from God and tried to run away from God. Which brings us to the opening verses again where we see this plan so clearly. Go. What is so unusual? He's called Nineveh. Raised because of his wickedness. We know from the book of Nahum. We'll look at this a little bit more next week. This was a very violent city. It was the head of the Assyrian Empire. It was a city full of blood, Nahum calls it. Uh, so let me, let me just do a couple things. First, let me talk about Nineveh for just a second. Then I'll show you a couple slides. Then I'll talk about Joppa, where he ran to. Uh, when you think of Assyria, we've talked about this before, you need to think of something like a court of ISIS. This is a very... Uh, brutal, in, brutal empire. They invented ways to do torture. Uh, today, the ruins of Nineveh are just outside of Mosul in northern Iraq. There's still some very good ruins there. Nineveh was a massive city, huge city, 500,000 probably plus easily. It was the center of culture, commerce, and military power. The Assyrian Empire at this time was the dominant empire on the planet. And one of Nineveh's kings, Sennacherib, is mentioned in the Bible, very interesting, had a magnificent palace in Nineveh. It has been excavated. And one of the things they have found, which has been taken out as the British Empire confiscated lots of stuff from around the world. Today, if you go to the British Museum, they have a whole section called the Assyrian Exhibit. And in there, there's the Lachish Room. And in there, there's a huge stone relief carvings on stone wall that has been removed from the, from the archaeological dig in Nineveh and moved to the British Museum. And there's a whole portrayal. Sennacherib would keep his battles 
well encrypted on this wall and what happened and he would lay out with graphic detail I won't explain the wall because it's extremely gruesome but you can see his military exploits and victories captured on this wall and it's been again most of it moved in full to the British Museum if you're ever there fascinating walk through that room and look at it up close there's part of this Lachish relief that records Sennacherib's invasion of Israel in 700 BC so again, reminding us what we're reading here isn't myth, it's not fairy tale, it is anchored in space-time history. So let me show you a couple pictures. First of all, of, uh, of what Babylon probably looked like there. This would be an artist's reconception. And then a photograph of some of the ruins today outside of Mosul. Very clear, still there, a lot of activity and evidence. If you go to the Lachish room, there's only just one photograph up close. This gives you a picture of one of the kings paying homage to Sennacherib. And again, it's fascinating to look it up. There's also, by the way, three prisms. I don't have a picture of those this morning. Uh, three clay prisms that were found in the ruins there in Nineveh called the Sennacherib prisms. And they are held today. One is in uh, Jerusalem. One is in London, and the British Museum. And one is in Chicago, the University of Chicago. And they are written in, I think, Akkadian, and they contain exploits. And what, there's a paragraph there where he describes, Sennacherib, his historians on that clay prism describe his invasion of Judah when he conquered, I think, 46 cities. Again, reminding us, this is anchored in history. This is not make-believe. Now, it says here, Jonah ran to Joppa, so God commands him to go that's the plan. Instead, he runs to Joppa. Where's Joppa? Well, Joppa or Jaffa today, southern port in Israel. Let me show you a couple of pictures of where Jonah was from Galilee. So this would have been about 70 miles or so from, from uh, where he was from, from Galilee. He runs down. That's when we took a group there a couple years ago. To, that's, that's right outside of Joppa. So what you see in the distance there is Tel Aviv. And we are standing right there in Joppa or Jaffa. And so it's right by Tel Aviv, very close to Jerusalem. That's where he went. You can see it's a seaport. And so that's where he ran. Show you a little closer up so you can see Tel Aviv. Next photo will show you some of the ruins that they have actually started to dig and have been digging up of Joppa. So again, it's really there. Always interesting. You find these things mentioned in the Bible, then you go dig, and you find them exactly where the Bible describes them. This has happened again and again and again in the history of archaeology. The next picture is a little bit amusing. It's a picture of a concrete whale. I think I got a picture of one of my kids sitting on there somewhere. I couldn't find it. But uh, that's, you know, to commemorate Jonah, supposedly, and the whale. Well, last photo, interesting. Napoleon marched through Jaffa in March of 1799. And this is when he invaded Palestine. And so there is a plaque there commemorating when Napoleon marched through that city. All right, let's pick up the narrative. Jonah runs to Joppa to try to escape. Verse 3, Jonah ran away from the Lord, headed for Tarshish. Interesting, three times in the Hebrew, twice in the NIV. ESV here shows all three times. It's mentioned Tarshish. Really, because Tarshish, we don't know exactly where it is, but we know it's the opposite direction. So three times, he ran away from the Lord, headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for, in the Hebrew again, Tarshish. After paying the ferry, he went on board and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So God, uh, making it very clear in the scripture here, 
This guy was doing anything but following the Lord. He's going the opposite direction. Three times in one verse it's mentioned he's heading to Tarshish. Again, telling us Jonah is on the run. Scholars, again, aren't sure exactly where it is, but they do know, as far as we can tell, most speculation puts it somewhere over probably by Spain, but we do know it's in the opposite direction. Now, here's the question this morning. Why would someone run away from God? Why is Jonah trying to run away from God? If you're running away from God this morning, something we usually don't ask ourselves is why am I doing this? Why would I rebel against what God so clearly laid out? Well, at the root of Jonah's disobedience, in fact, at the root of all disobedience, if you think about it for a minute, is mistrust in the goodness of God. Because at root, you don't believe his commands. That's the issue. You really don't believe that what God has laid out in his word is the best path forward for you. Jonah did not believe that God had his best interest at heart. And it's a reminder, friends, young people hear this, it is a reminder that all sin is rooted in a belief that God's will is not the best plan for us. That's, let me say it one more time because it's really important. It's a belief that all sin is rooted in the belief that God's will is not the best plan for us. That's what rebellion is. You really don't believe in the goodness of God. Sin involves character assassination, really, of God first. It's, it's ultimately a sin of disbelief. You don't believe God knows what he's doing. You don't believe his plan is the best plan, and you often believe it's the exact opposite of the best plan for you. We convince ourselves that if we obey what God says, I'm going to be miserable. We convince ourselves if we submit to God's will, we will miss out on what's best in life. And which means that sin is not only evil, it's insanity when you think about it. And the chief reason we trust God so little is because we put so much trust in our own wisdom, which is, again, insanity. The irony is the more Jonah insisted on doing his own thing, the more he insisted on going his own way, the more he insisted on his own agenda, the more he insisted on following his own plan, the more of a train wreck things became. And that never changes, that pattern never changes. For some of us here this morning, it's not changing right now. Friends, we've all done the Jonah thing at times, whether you're truly saved. I know a lot of us here this morning know Christ. I know some of us here do not. Some of us are in open rebellion against God here this morning. We've all done the Jonah thing. And maybe you're trying to run away from the Lord this morning. Maybe you're not, but maybe you are. Maybe you're refusing, for example, to surrender to Christ. Someone's been sharing with you, you know the gospel, and again and again you've gotten right up to the point, but you refuse to bow the knee to Christ. You may come up with all sorts of intellectual reasons, but that's not the issue. The issue is submission to authority. That's the issue. There's a collision of authority at the moment of conversion where you have to say, thy will be done, and you're done saying, my will be done. Or maybe you're refusing to get baptized. Maybe you are a believer in Christ, but you're saying, as I've had many say to me, I'm not going to get baptized. Even though it's the first command, it's an issue of obedience, going public for Jesus, even though not doing it brings repercussions as far as God, any disobedience brings repercussions. You're saying, I'm, I'm not doing it. Maybe you're running from the Lord this morning and resisting forgiving somebody. 
amazing how many bitter people there are in the kingdom of God. I run into them regularly, young and old alike. Bitterness wears a lot of faces, but a lot of people, I'm not forgiving so-and-so. I will not. I cannot. I will never. Maybe you're running from the Lord this morning and you're refusing to say no to pornography. You know that it's increasingly pulling you into a very dark world. I believe pornography often opens the door to demonism in somebody's life easily when they get pulled into it, hook, line, and sinker. Maybe you're here this morning running from God with your money, saying, I'm not going to tithe my money. I'm not going to honor God and tithe and give above the tithe. It's a lot of money. And the more you make, the more it becomes. So we could fill in the blank with all sorts of, I'm running from God from. Message of Jonah. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, hear this. A message of Jonah applies to me and applies to everybody here. When we try to run away from God, lots of things happen. And they're all bad. And it's amazing how long it takes to learn that lesson in our lives. Because even seasoned, mature believers do it again and again at times. I've done it a number of times. Sometimes it lasts a day, sometimes a week, before you realize this is insanity what I'm doing. And I need to repent and turn around and go the other way. One more thing before we leave chapter 1. You should note here that Jonah refers to, I mean that Jesus refers to Jonah in Matthew 12. I invite you to turn to Matthew 12 for just a second. Jesus is talking with some of his religious critics. Most of those who around him were, most of the religious leaders around him were critics. But it's interesting, Jesus refers to Jonah in a positive sense. I got done, again, I've preached out of Jonah a number of times over the years. I love the book. Every time I preach through it, I end up with pretty much the same conclusion. Jonah was an idiot. In that sense, I'm a lot like him. I'm an idiot many times, and so I identify. I'm surprised as I read Jesus painting Jonah in a, in a positive light. So we do have some interpretive rationale and precedence for viewing this in a positive sense, even though much of what we read about Jonah is a very flawed, very disobedient very immature man who, when he doesn't get his way, pouts and is even upset as a missionary. The people he goes to and he's supposed to share the gospel with, when they do repent, he gets mad. He's just the strangest missionary. Matthew 12, Jesus is talking with some critics and he refers to the sign of the prophet Jonah. And if you drop down to verse 41... Talks about someone greater than Jonah is now here. So if you start, look there in verse 38. Some of the Pharisees' teachers of law said, Teacher, we want to see a sign. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. None will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, that's mentioned in a positive sense. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three nights three days, three nights, in the heart of the earth. Interesting that as you see that, in some way, Jesus is saying Jonah's three days and three nights in the fish points to his coming death burial and then eventually resurrection. Interesting as you go back and look a lot of the early church fathers and how they write about Jonah in their homilies and in their sermons, they saw Jonah very clearly 
Overwhelmingly, they saw Jonah as a sign of Jesus' coming ministry and death and resurrection. Let me give you one, one example, just to whet your appetite. A number of biblical scholars, both ancient and current, have pointed out very strong similarities between the story in Jonah and what's going on with the storm with Jesus in Mark 4. I looked at a number of different scholars this week, both past and present, and you see this mentioned again and again. In fact, most argue there's too many similarities to just be a coincidence. Bible's filled with these, uh, by the way, with these kind of inter-textual connections that so many of us miss today in what I would call an age of distraction. Our minds are going so fast all the time that we really don't hardly do anything well. We live in constant distraction from electronics. And the Bible is filled with these kind of intertextual connections that so many of us today in the fast-paced life we live miss. But a number of scholars, and this goes again across hundreds of years, have seen parallels between Jonah and Jesus' storm that he weathered in Mark 4. For example, both Jonah and Jesus are out in boats. These are some of the things they compare. Now, there's obviously some dissimilarities between the two, but here's some of the similarities. They're both out in boats. Both boats are taken over by sudden storms. Both storms are described as especially violent. Both Jesus and Jonah are from Galilee. Both Jonah and Jesus are asleep when the storm strikes. Both are awakened by men who are in fear of their lives. Both stories, God intervenes and the sea suddenly is supernaturally calmed. And both stories end with the observers of Jesus and Jonah standing in fear and awe. And so you have these kind of connections. Assuming that similarities like that are indeed intentional, and we have some interpretive rationale for doing this because Jesus right here in Matthew 12 does link and mention Jonah. Question is, what's the point? Well, the point is verse 41, Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, here's the key, Something greater than Jonah is here. That's the point of seeing these connections. All these things would do would be pointing to Jesus as Messiah, meaning Jonah's story, Jonah's experiences, again point to Jesus and the gospel, to his atoning death, to his three days in the grave, and ultimately to his resurrection. That's what these intertextual connections generally are doing. So that's God's plan for Jonah. It's very clear. Jonah's on the run. He doesn't want to submit. That brings us secondly and lastly this morning to Jonah's, or God's patient with Jonah. And many here miss how God is patient with Jonah. His patient comes in the form of a great fish, not a whale. That's why I laugh every time I see that crazy concrete whale in Joppa. We speak about Jonah and the whale. It was not a whale. Hebrew is very clear. It's not a whale. It's a fish. Huge fish or great fish, depending on how you translate it. But God in his mercy was intent on saving Jonah. And so his mercy, his patience, comes out in the form of a fish who swallows him. So I'm going to pick up the narrative, chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea go calm for us? Pick me up, throw me in the sea, replied, and it'll become calm. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. 
for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to Yahweh, to the Lord. Please, Lord. Interesting, they start to call him Yahweh, after Jonah does. Please, Lord, do not let us die before taking, for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man before you, O Lord. Have done as you please. Then they took Jonah, and they tossed him overboard. And the raging sea stopped, grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. Again, the divine names used. They greatly feared Yahweh. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows to him. Now, here's an interesting question. When it says Jonah asked them or told them, throw me in the sea, here's an interesting question. Is he submitting to God at that point or rebelling against God's plan for him at that point? That's why you have all these, within 48 verses, you've got all these issues going on and a number of questions that don't always have a clear answer. It's hard to tell from his language, his attitude at times, if he is submitting to God's plan or rebelling. The reason it's a little hard to tell is he says nothing about the Lord and he doesn't use the language of repentance. He just says, throw me in the, in the drink, throw me in the ocean, and the whole thing will stop. Now, eventually, however, true Christians are all just called to discover what Jonah did. And that is this, that a genuine believer cannot, in the end, run away from God. And I use genuine, I underline genuine, true believer, someone who has repented, confessed to God, hated their sin, hated the sin they used to love, loved the righteousness they used to hate, and has placed their trust and has surrendered the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what a true believer is. It's somebody who's embraced the gospel it is impossible for that person to run ongoing, uninterrupted away from the Lord. You cannot if you are one of God's own. And that's what happened here to Jonah. Also interesting to notice the language of God's intervention. The language of God's providence and sovereignty in this book is extreme. And that, what I mean by that is some of the most concentrated pictures of God's providence and sovereignty you can find in a very short section of the Bible. For example, look at verse 4. The, just the verb, God sent a great wind. And usually with all these statements, it's the divine name used. Yahweh sent a great wind. Verse 17, who provided the fish? The Lord commanded, depending on how you do the Hebrew, different English translations, commanded or sent or provided the great fish. Look at 2 verse 10, chapter 2 verse 10. Not only did the Lord command the fish, provided a fish to swallow Jonah, chapter 2 verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish, Yahweh commanded the fish to puke him up on the beach, to vomit him up on the beach. Or if you go to chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 6, God provides a vine. Chapter uh, verse 7, God provides a worm. Verse 8, God provides a scorching wind. I mean, it's just, it's, it's relentless in the book. God sends the wind. God sends the fish. God commands the fish to swallow him. Then he commands the fish to vomit him up. Then he provides a vine. Then God provides a worm. Then God provides a scorching wind. And each time, it's very clear it is God who is doing this. Even the weather and the deep sea creatures and insects obey his every decree. 
That is the sovereign God, and you don't see the sovereignty of God quite so concentrated as you do in Jonah's 48 verses. What is God's providence? John Piper has a brand new book out, if you have not seen it, called Providence. He spent his life writing it, capturing this. God's providence, which is a very clear theme throughout Scripture, and it's a key why so many don't understand the Scriptures, and it's also one of the reasons so many Christians are fearful. As world conditions deteriorate, and they're always deteriorating, what is it? God's providence is the Bible's teaching that God is in absolute full control of his creation and of the universe. There's not a detail, there's not a molecule that moves outside of his divine decree. That is what God's providence is. And historically, it has brought huge comfort to God's people because of that. And no matter what's going on, no matter who's elected to office, no matter what is going on with inflation or COVID or world wars, or despotic regimes in other countries, no matter what happens on this planet, what we read about and see on TV, we know God's good plans are unfolding. Whether we understand them, whether we like them, whether they terrify us, and it brings a calming to the true child of God when they understand the providence of God. That brings us to Jonah's strange prayer in chapter 2. He prays from inside this fish. It's a bit of a strange prayer. I was again just soaking on this yesterday. And while there is some level of plea and thanksgiving in this prayer, his Jonah's self-centeredness continues to be evident. And if there's any doubt, you still see, you, you see it, especially in chapter 4. Jonah is grateful, but he doesn't repent in chapter 2 for running from God, and his bad attitude continues in chapter 3 and 4. So let me read verses 1 to 5 as we pick up this prayer inside the fish. Three days and three nights from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. And the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Interesting little detail from being inside of a fish. Verses 9 and 10. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good, I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Verse 9 is probably the most positive affirmation we find in the book. In fact, some argue it is the key to the book, that it is the verse, the organizing interpretive verse in that sense around what's going on, that salvation comes from the Lord. You can say that with a soft heart, you can say that with a hard heart, Looking at Jonah, he's somewhere in between, but he does recognize ultimately that salvation only comes from God. Only God seeks somebody. Only God elects. Only God draws. Tim Keller has written on Jonah, written on lots of stuff, but I like the way he captures this about verse 9. He said, salvation belongs to God alone, to no one else. If, if someone is saved, it is wholly God's doing. 
It is not a matter of God gives you partly, saves you partly, and you save yourself partly. No, God saves us. We do not, and we cannot save ourselves. That's the gospel. And that goes back to many verses in the Bible. Romans 9, 18, where God's salvation and his sovereignty is on display. He says, I will have mercy on whom I want to have mercy, which is a great thing to know that God chooses to have mercy on some. Otherwise, nobody's in the kingdom. But then he goes on to say something many Americans hate. And he says, I will harden whom I want to harden. And again, the issue is not, do I like that? The issue is not, is that emotionally attractive to me? The issue is, what does the text say? And the text is very clear from Genesis to Revelation. God decides whom to have mercy on, and he decides whom to harden. And here, we see it here. Salvation is of the Lord. Only God is the one who decides who gets saved and who he's going to have mercy on. And amazingly, he chooses to have mercy not only on this prophet, but on this very wicked city. And we're going to dive a little more into how wicked Nineveh was and the Assyrian Empire next weekend. All right, summons this morning. Just summons of the book, but more importantly, summons of these first two chapters. So two things as we land the airplane here today. Number one, do you have a genuine, and I underline that, saving faith in Jesus? Why do I emphasize that? Because the Bible warns us, especially see this coming out of Matthew's gospel, there's this almost burden in the gospel of Matthew to warn people about the danger of being a counterfeit disciple. Counterfeit faith. Matthew reminds us something is greater than, G- than Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the only Savior. 2 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul, chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for sin so that he would be made right through God. So we could be made right with God through Christ. God made Christ, his son, who never sinned to be an offering for sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It means the only way to be saved from the coming judgment, and there is a judgment coming, the only way to be made right is to repent, to hate the sin I used to love, to love the righteousness I used to hate, to repent of my sin, to repent of my attempts to be righteous, to repent from religion, and to surrender to Jesus as Lord. I remember when I got saved as a young teenager, admitting my sin and rebellion to God and just pouring out my heart that I needed a Savior. It happened after I went to camp one summer and I came home. And I remember right in my bedroom, just pouring out my heart, oh God, I need a Savior and I need Christ. However you phrase it, however it's said, that is the cry of the repentant heart. Do you know Christ? Have you turned to him Have you been born again? It's more than just knowing information. It involves transformation from the inside out by the power of his Holy Spirit. And once we do, we become one in Christ. We become one with Christ. His Holy Spirit dwells in us, and we get a brand new name and a brand new identity. And we get a brand new destination. Second and last question this morning, as we look at this, the summons from this book. Whenever you try to run from God, whenever we try to run from God, it's not going to end well. And it's just good once in a while to hear that out loud. Frank Sinatra used to sing his famous song, what? I did it my way. 
Talk about the most insane song. Nice tune, but what a philosophy of life. It's exactly what Jonah did, and he stands as a classic example of the mess we make when we insist on doing things our way. That just screams out of the text of Jonah. I remember working with a guy roughly my age a number of years ago in another church. We were doing counseling with them, and this guy was one of the most obtuse, angry people I'd ever worked with. Just and he was very similar to Jonah. He was angry. He was defiant. He was absolutely determined to resist and run from God, do his own thing. And as we talked over, we, did, we worked with this couple for a couple years, but the more he fought against God, the worse things got for him. Tried to point this out again and again. And he just continued to run and be, his life ended up being an absolute train wreck. That happens to, that's the lesson coming from this, that if you're trying to run from God this morning, young person, if you're trying to run from God, older person, if you're trying to run from God, your time's running short. It's time to repent and seek. The reality is the more we run from God, the more we fight His authority, lots of things are going to happen, and all of them are going to be bad. The lesson from Jonah is trying to run from God is futile. Trying to run from God is foolish, it is dangerous, and it is deadly. And we damage not only ourselves, we damage others around us. See this again and again with young people or with moms and dads who are rebelling. You don't think about siblings you're taking down and hurting. You don't think about the shrapnel that goes out and shreds spouses and parents and relatives and friends and people at church. Lesson from Jonah is trying to run from God is futile, it's foolish. If you've been running from God, here's something to realize. It's not an accident you're sitting here right now in his providence with him offering you a second chance because he is the God of second chances. And so before we go to the Lord's table, I'm going to quote from Hebrews 12.1, a great encouragement reminder about seeking him. Let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That, friends, is the only path to real joy, lasting joy, and wholeness, and healing, and spiritual health. That's it. You may say, I don't believe that. May the Lord open your eyes to believe that, and may you see this today as God offering you a second chance if you have indeed been running.